Welcome to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com, dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. Serving leaders, managers, and people who will be, helping you reach excellence in your work and achieve your personal goals at the same time. Sign up for the free course at clearandopen.com. You don't practice things fast. You practice things painfully slow to smooth out the neurological connections. That's what gives you speed. But again, all of the conditioning in any action movie, nobody ever shows that. Even Karate Kid. Hi, it's Joseph, and thanks for tuning in to Manage to Engage, the podcast from clearandopen.com. The biggest roadblock to becoming stronger is our refusal to get deeply intimate with our weaknesses. I'm going to say that again. The biggest roadblock to becoming stronger is our refusal to get deeply intimate with our weaknesses. As an extension of that, far too many of us are willing to acknowledge the faults in our parents because they're related. There's nothing more important than looking at your parents' weaknesses because it's easier to see than your own. And the more we learn about our parents, the more we learn about ourselves. This episode was originally recorded as part of the Claiming Self-Authority course, available at courses.clearandopen.com. Speaking of courses, I've got a new one coming up, and I want to tell you about it. I've wanted to cover essential leadership tools for a while, but I couldn't find the angle to make it really powerful. I'm talking about tools like visions, org charts, job descriptions, etc. These are all important, but not in the ways most people think. When I do business development with clients, I have them create these kinds of things, but a course on the basics didn't excite me. And then I remembered where the power really was, and I want to recite my favorite Michael Gerber quote from the best-selling book, Emith Revisited, to illustrate. He says, The problem with most failing businesses I've encountered is not that their owners don't know enough about finance, marketing, management, and operations. They don't, but those things are easy enough to learn but that they spend their time and energy defending what they think they know. The greatest business people I've met are determined to get it right, no matter what the cost. What Gerber says here points to the confusion between context and content that is epidemic in our society. How to create a budget, a repeat sales process, a marketing plan, these are not difficult tasks once you know the basics of how to do it. That's the content, the tool. Where the opportunity lies is in the context, the resistance you run into, what stops you from doing it well, and what stops you from actually using it. These kinds of issues, these are often deep emotional issues, psycho-spiritual issues. They are, in other words, the context of how you relate to the content of the tool. I've been helping people go through this process for almost 20 years, and yeah, that makes me feel old but that's okay. And almost no one gets it done without a lot of prodding inspiration and help understanding what's getting them stuck. So in this course, I'm going to cover the nine most essential business tools and tell you how to do them well. But more importantly, I'm going to coach you through the most common issues that get in the way. This is typically only what I do with individual clients, but I'm going to do it in a group format for the first time ever. How I'm going to pull that off, I honestly don't know at the moment. That's the challenge that gets me excited about this course. Your challenge is to take it on. This course I'd consider a requirement for any business owner, but it will significantly help anyone with a job, especially managers. 
For more information, please go to clearandopen.com slash essential. Again, that's clearandopen.com slash essential. This course is such a meaty task. I'm teaching it in two parts. Part one begins in the summer quarter, June 24th, 2021, and runs nine consecutive weeks. Part two runs 11 weeks consecutively, beginning September 9. You can join anytime if you're brave, and I hope to see you there. Thanks so much for listening. Let's start the show. One of my martial arts teachers, Peter Ralston, relatively famous guy in the martial arts world, used to say, a weakness that you completely own and see is no longer a weakness. It actually becomes a strength. Bruce Lee used to talk about this. You have to know your limitations and operate inside them. But the intimacy with our own limitations, the intimacy with our own weakness, we're conditioned not to do that because it appears negative. Why would you focus on your limits? Why would you focus on your weaknesses? That's an affront to your positive self-image, which will affect your self-esteem, you see. And then it creates this divide where strength's good, weakness is bad. Push away the weaknesses and try to develop your strengths. But if in one way, the strength and the weakness is the same thing, then what happens when you push away the weakness? You push away the strength as well. And that is the state of our world. Masses and masses, billions of people who want to become stronger without looking at their weaknesses. That's our world. People who want to become stronger without getting rigorously intimate with their weaknesses. Because it's uncomfortable. And because the ego is trying to create a positive self-image. Because that's the idea that that's what creates power. Doubling down on strengths and eschewing weaknesses. But anyone who's ever done any really careful work on yourself or on anything, really, a moment's reflection will tell you that it's the intimacy with what's not working that creates change. Paying really close attention to that. That's bringing the weaknesses, and weaknesses are sort of in quotes, along with you. So if you buy this so far, I don't see any confused looks or obstreperous protests. You buy this, then if you're interested in power, if you're interested in being the strongest person you can be, if you're interested in your own self-authority, then it follows inarguably that you have to get to know your weaknesses better than anything else. Check me. See what I did there? I just convinced you that getting really intimate with your own weaknesses is the path to your greatest strengths. Now you're screwed if you believe this. Because that's the only way. Now, you can develop strengths, of course. You might say, here's an argument. I'll play devil's advocate for myself. You could say, but I've managed to become strong in lots of different ways without looking at some of my weaknesses. Yes, that's true. You can do that. It's like a rubber band. You can stretch if one part is the strength. You can stretch that rubber band into strength territory and leave the weakness behind. You can do that. But there will be a certain point where you reach a limit. 
it's sort of like I play guitar and there's a, any guitarist knows that there's this thing about guitar called keeping your pinky down on your fretting hand. The pinky likes, likes to fly way up above the fretboard. And so you can spend, and I did, years ignoring because the other three fingers are much easier to control. They'll stay near the strings. But the pinky likes to come way up like inches. And they call it flying fingers or the flying pinky. And you can get good at guitar without ever addressing that pinky thing. And it's quite nauseating to try to keep it down. And it's like, think of it as, a, I have this phrase, fingertip labor. It's small and nauseating and it's hard to control. It's really not fun. So people avoid controlling their pinky for years, sometimes their entire life. If you ever watch a guitar player play, watch their uh, fretting hand pinky and see how high it goes up. You can see if you've found someone who's spent the 20 or 30 or 50 hours working on that and fixing it. Now, why does it have to be fixed? Well, because if your pinky is flying way off the fretboard, it slows you down because you're doing like 10, 15 times the movement, and then it's got to go all the way back. So there are certain levels of speed that you will just never get if your pinky flies off the fretboard. Can you get good at guitar? Sure. Can you get great? No. 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 Any great guitarist must pass through that gate. And they know this. And this is why people who are truly great at stuff get really small. And it's difficult to see because we're not aware of this kind of stuff. Like I think of the uh, movie Rocky, which is certainly one of the films that made training montages famous. Maybe it was the first one. I don't know. But the Rocky training montages, you know, they show all of this inspired hard work. And then the presentation, you know, during whatever songs that you see, and it lasts 45 seconds or whatever. And the message is becoming great at something is being inspired and working with your strengths and working hard when you're inspired to do so. But if we were to revise that and make it actually reality, what we would what they would show is Rocky's character his alarm going off at 5 a.m. and it's raining and cold and he's internally wrestling with that he doesn't want to get out of bed because that's what it takes. Doing the thing when it's easy and you're inspired, that's not hard. It's doing it when you don't want to. It's moving your pinky down a centimeter off the string or less when it's making you want to throw up to do it. We don't see this in films. We don't see what the work to get to real power is. And so we're conditioned to think that it's working with our strengths rather than getting nauseatingly intimate with our weaknesses, which is what it actually is. That guy, Peter Ralston, that I talked about, the martial artist, I had the privilege of training with him. And it's, it's the same thing in, I mean, boxing is a martial art, but it's, it's the same thing in the what we think of as martial arts, Oh, you know, Lyle is a martial artist. He he'll, he understands this. When we see the martial arts training stuff, like I think of Game of Thrones, where they show someone learning how to use a sword, and you know we see this all the time. Like the better person, the instructor, basically beats the crap out of the person, and then somehow through their defeat, they learn something. You don't learn shit that way. <laughs> you don't learn anything that way. You learn by slowly, nauseatingly paying attention to, you know, okay, I have the advantage right now. Where does your body want to move? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, get out of your head. Where does your body want to move? Okay, how about here? No, 
bring your attention even lower. What about now? You're still, you're attentive. That's how you get better at martial arts. As an expression from the military that gets used on uh, gun rages, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and fast, fast is lethal. And Bruce Lee taught a lot, a lot about this. You gain speed through economy of movement. You don't practice speed. You don't practice things fast. You practice things painfully slow to smooth out the neurological connections. That's what gives you speed. But again, all of the conditioning in any action movie, nobody ever shows that. Even Karate Kid, you know, where he's got to stand on the thing and like, okay, or waxing the car, that got kind of near it. But they don't really show exactly how awful and frustrating and hard it is. They touch upon that a little bit. So all of this is to say is that you've been conditioned to turn away from your weaknesses. And that is one of your biggest barriers to your own power. That's the paradox. That's the paradox. In the name of a positive self-image, in the name of keeping your spirits up, oh, and for sure in the name of the pursuit of happiness. Because when you look at your weaknesses, doesn't make you happy, does it? But there it is. That's the work that is required. So the reason I was moved to bring this up today was because there was a theme in the work that you sent me. And this is why it's super cool when I get a good amount of people's work. I get to see the themes and, and uh, how people are relating to it. It tells me what to teach next. And the theme was going way too easy on your parents. Way too easy. So if we look at being uh, seeing the strengths and seeing the weaknesses of someone as essentially the same thing in context. But in content, there's an appropriateness of what's useful in any given moment. This exercise, the one I gave you, and the ones that I will be giving you after today, and possibly beyond that, what's called for, what will give you the path to the power in you that you are and that you seek, is being ruthlessly critical, seeing their weaknesses. Now, why does it make sense, other than the conditioning that I talked about, why does it make sense that most people at first err on the side of being of letting their parents off the hook? Why does that make sense? This is the kind of thing that when therapists get together, we commiserate and go, oh yeah, you have a client who's defending their parents, huh? Mm, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. It's universal. Why is that? Go ahead. Can you hear it now? I got you now, yeah. Okay, great. Um, what, what I said was, if you're being super critical of your folks, you're really criticizing yourself as well because you've taken on their patterns. Bingo. That's the primary reason. Because whatever the, the more rigorously you see the faults and weaknesses in your parents, the more you're going to sort of intuitively look at those other three fingers pointing back at you. Because whatever they didn't deal with, they passed the torch to you and gave you to deal with. Sorry, that's shitty. But then what do we do with that? Do we go, oh, well... I don't want to deal with those weaknesses in me. So I'm just going to pretend I'm my own person 
I've grown out of all that. I've made decisions that are different than they. I'm a completely different person. So I don't have to carefully examine the weaknesses of my parents. There is perhaps no more important thing for one to do because your parents are easier to see than you are from your perspective because they're not you. Because seeing your own weaknesses is the hardest thing in the world to do. So you can get help from someone who will you know, paint you a picture like me. But to me, the primary reason to have an adult relationship with your parents, if, asterisk, if you don't have much in common with them and you wouldn't hang out with them if you weren't related, which is not always the case. Sometimes you have similar interests and values with your parents and you'd hang out with them whether you were related or not. Cool, that's great. But if you don't, and you say to yourself, well, what's the point of talking to my parents? We're like completely different people. The best reason to connect with them is to learn about yourself. Now, I'm not saying you talk about that with them necessarily because they may not be able to hear it. But on the inside, you're taking notes. You're taking notes because they're telling you all sorts of stuff about you in every moment. They're an enormously rich resource. Now, some of you may be wincing on the inside or maybe the outside. I thought I just saw a wince. Yeah, I'm not suggesting this is like recreational or fun, but it is really useful. Joseph? Yeah. Is there a universality for people to idolize their parents in a manner that does not in any shape or form invite any form of critique? There are many, I mean, I can only speak on behalf of the culture I grew up in where you do not question your father. Yes. You do not talk back to your mother, let alone think about, well, they've got, they didn't do this, they didn't do that. Is, is that a universality? And is that, how would you deal with the person who has that very, very strong conditioning blockage? Yeah. Because if, if, if it is what you were saying, that their weaknesses are passed on and weaknesses are strengths are the same thing. How do you get past a brick wall like that? Yeah, that's a great question. It leads me to something I want to talk about because if it wasn't bad enough that this is woven into our self-image and our cultural conditioning around it, and then we add to that that people just generally don't like talking about their weaknesses overall because it's uncomfortable, there's another piece that you implicitly brought up, and that is religious conditioning. There's a commandment, I forget which one in Christianity, that says, honor thy mother and father. And in all of the three Western religions, the, uh, the Abrahamic religions, is Islam, Ju Judaism, and Christianity, whether it's written out as a commandment or not, this is very much implied. They're the boss. You shall not question them. Okay. Why? <laughs> Why? Just to see through it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you start critiquing your parents. That may or may not go well. That's a completely separate issue. I'm talking about you seeing it for what it is inside yourself. Critiquing your parents in relationship is a whole other issue. I'm not suggesting you do that 
Although that can be very interesting to find out their relationship to their weakness. My parents, for example, are some of the best excuse makers you'll ever meet. And it took me a long time to see that because I didn't want to see how good I was at making excuses. I saw their skill in making excuses long before I saw mine. So you got to be careful not to start critiquing them as a way to divert attention from yourself. So if I could change one commandment of the 10, it would be the honor thy mother and father one. It's backwards. Honor thy son and daughter is what it should be. They're the dependents. They're the ones brought into the world with needs that are active and must be met. But the whole thing is reversed in a, here's a key word, authoritarian way. The power differential is screwed up. It puts the parents above the kids in a way that's true, but becomes a truth in service of the realities of the children being invalidated. Because the right use of power, yes, the parents are more powerful, obviously, for a while anyway. But the right use of that power is to get underneath and support the power of the child, not to stay powerful. And this you can see in any authority relationship, in management, in teacher-student relationships, certainly in parents. Do the parents have an explicit goal to make you more powerful than they are? Did any of your parents actually talk with you that way at when you were 12, 13, 14, maybe even younger? Did they say, you know what? Hey, I had this kind of parenting and this kind of upbringing, but you know what would make me most excited? For by the time you're 18, to be way smarter than I'll ever be. More worldly, more facile in relationships, more conscious, whatever it is, more something, more something. But the mythology, for example, in my growing up, the mythology in my family was that dad knows everything. That was the, what I grew up with. And he is a, a relatively smart guy, good at crossword puzzles, unbeatable in Trivial Pursuit. Remember that game, the 80s game, Trivial Pursuit? And he would just win Trivial Pursuit every time. And we would go, how do you know that? And, everyone, and my mother would say, oh, dad knows everything. Dad knows everything. And that was cool to look up to at 10, 11, 12. But when I started to know some things and get smart, we started to run into conflicts because I became smarter than he was. But that challenged the Shapiro family trance of dad knows everything. And it became a splinter in my soul because I wasn't seen. I was more powerful than my father and neither he nor anyone else could see it. And then it took me until a month ago to learn that it turned out I was donor sperm donor conceived. Some of you already know this. So it's, I did a video about this a month ago. Then I found that I was sperm donor conceived and that my biological father was considered a genius in his family. So this adds some explanation to this, why my father had to be smarter than I was, because it probably triggered the immense shame he had 
that biologically I was not his son. So I had to stay inside the box and then spent many decades working out that power conditioning so that I could be greater than that. But what would have happened if I had a family that lifted me up and said, whoa, the kinds of things you're thinking about and doing, that's like totally beyond us, might have been really different. So you don't have to be donor conceived to have had your reality invalidated that way. But it's a really good example for an extreme. As I say so often when I tell that story, it's not about me, it's about you. How did your parents invalidate your power? How did they insist you honor thy mother and father and refuse to be questioned in ways that had nothing to do with serving you and everything about serving them. Because that's where your existential relationship to power started off on a wounded foot. Where, Because many of you are parents now, and you know that as a parent, you have no idea what you're doing, right? I mean, that's the truth. You are making it up. It's the hardest job in the world with the least amount of instructions. It's almost like a cruel joke. Like, how could you take the hardest job in the world and then have the most amount of uncertainty and the least amount of instructions? And then you have this, and then you experience that. And then the kid wants answers and has needs. And now you're in this position of like, wow, I can tell this really matters. And I really love this kid. And I really want to do a good job. But I know I'm not. I know I'm not. And I can see the mistakes that I'm making. And not many parents will actually feel this. I'm not a parent, but I've been in therapy groups with parents who face for the first time the ways in which they failed their children. It's hard. It's like it feels like putting your heart through a meat grinder to have the love you have for a kid and the reality of where you deeply wounded them and experience that at the same time. It's like having your heart turned shredded into pieces. That's an immense amount of pain to be able to bear. And what do humans do with such pain? Nothing. They repress it. So when they repress it like that, they need to pretend that they know exactly what they're doing and cannot entertain any question that would pull on the the loose thread that would unravel all of their false self-image about being a good parent or being a perfect parent anyway. Because even a good parent, there's no such thing as perfect, but even a good parent will often resist looking at where they failed. Thanks for listening to Manage to Engage, the clear and open podcast. Join us next week when you'll be a little bit closer to who you're destined to be. Until then, know that Clear and Open is dedicated to the evolution of you because businesses grow when people do. If you want to help the show grow, I'd appreciate you leaving a rating and review on iTunes. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcasts app, view the full description of the episode, and click the link to leave a rating and review. Or you can go to clearandopen.com review and it will bring you to the right place. If you're looking for more support on your journey, head over to clearandopen.com for even more tools, articles, and free resources. Thanks so much for listening. 
Bye for now.